really to me, it's just about freedom, the freedom to get up in the morning and choose what I do with my day every day, all day. That's really what I want. And to me, that is what retirement from full-time work really means. Hey, this is Heath Padgett and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 105. The RV Entrepreneur is a weekly podcast for nomadic entrepreneurs. In this episode, I'm interviewing Steve Adcock and Courtney from ThinkSaveRetire.com. Steve is a former software developer, and his wife Courtney is a soon-to-be-retired rocket scientist. I kid you not. Steve set a personal goal to retire at age 40, but actually ended up retiring last year at the ripe age of 36 and surely hit the road after in a 2005 Airstream. A few things that we talk about in today's episode is what the heck is early retirement and how do you achieve it? Does early retirement mean that you don't have to or you don't want to work anymore? How much do you need to save for early retirement? And something called the 4% rule, which has to do with your overall net worth and calculating how much you can spend on a yearly basis and know exactly how much you need to retire. So it's some really interesting stuff. And also we talk about how YOLO, you only love once factors into your financial freedom. And you know what I'm talking about, making the excuses uh, for wanting to enjoy your life. So how do you strike that balance between enjoying your life and, you know, enjoying a nice meal and nice dinners, but also working towards early retirement? And before getting into the episode and a quick word from the sponsors, I just want to share one thing uh, that's kind of cool that Alyssa and I are working on. It's called the 12 Days of RV Christmas, and it's essentially 12 different deals if you're interested in running a business that is remote and from the road, or also if you're just interested in RV life. So for 12 days, we're sending out deals. We've reached out to vendors and partners who have cool products or things that we use. Actually, they're all things that we use. And uh, we're sending out one daily deal that we hope is valuable for you guys. So if you Go to heathandalyssa.com forward slash Christmas. You can sign up for the 12 days of RV Christmas if you're listening to this when it comes out. So either way, there'll be a form up there. Even if you're listening to it after this, it still might be going on. So go to heathandalyssa.com forward slash Christmas. Support for today's episode is provided by WeBoost and Passport America. I want to thank today's sponsor, WeBoost, and the new 4GX RV cell phone booster. This cell phone booster is something I wish we would have picked up the day we bought our RV because I can't tell you how many times over the past three years we were in truly beautiful places outside of national or state parks, but we had to leave early because there was only one to two bars of Verizon and we couldn't get any work done or it wasn't fast enough to record a podcast over Skype, which is kind of a big deal. The 4GX RV cell booster can take that signal, multiply it up to 32x, and then rebroadcast it throughout the entire RV to give us a significant boost in internet speed. This means more time in beautiful places and faster internet wherever we go. WeBoost's new cell phone booster is made specifically for RVs, and if you want to receive a 10% discount, you can reach out and email me directly, heath at campgroundbooking.com, and I will hook you up with that discount code. Go to weboost.com to learn more about their cell phone boosters. Passport America is the original 50% discount camping club and something that has saved Alyssa and I hundreds, if not thousands of dollars over the past few years. Participating campgrounds will give you a 50% discount rate for your stay. Plus, they have an easy-to-use app that lists out nearly all of their 1,900 locations. Considering a nightly rate for a campsite can be anywhere from $25 to $100 or more per night at the fancy campgrounds, you can literally make your money back from using Passport America the first time that you use it. To learn more and receive three extra months on your first year's membership, go to PassportAmerica.com and use the discount code RVE. All right, let's get into today's show with Steve and Courtney. Thanks for being on the podcast, guys. Thanks so much, Heath. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So you guys weren't always saving like crazy and living a very frugal lifestyle. I'm super interested in this whole financial blogger and this whole idea of retiring super early. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys got set on this track to retire at a ridiculously young age? Well, right out of college, I probably a month into my first real job, I spent half of my first year salary on a Corvette. And I mean, that was a really awesome car, but it was a <laughs> stupid expense, a complete money pit. And I mean, a lot of us make those mistakes early on in life. And I guess they're better to make earlier rather than later because you have some time to recover from them. But you know, I moved to, to Arizona. That was in Virginia. Shortly after I met my soon-to-be wife, 
um, we realized that we'd have two incomes coming our way, and we started to think about what we can do with that. We're going to be almost doubling our income. So we could either spend that income or I didn't have a lot of satisfaction out of what I did for a living. I mean, I, I do IT. I really do love IT and software development. I just don't like the job aspects of IT and software software development. So without all that extra income, it's like, what do we do with this? Maybe we can put it to a better use. Yeah. And I was a saver more so than Steve. But um, again, like once we actually hooked up and we were going to get married and we were like, what, what do we do with all this extra money? It's a good problem to have. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> just from, yeah, we two houses, two good incomes in Tucson. So I always like typical path. It was like, well, I guess we could have a vacation home or something. But, um, Steve's dad actually retired at 49 and he had told Steve in college that some people do the 10 year plan, which is they work really, really hard for 10 years and then they're done. Um, and so when Steve mentioned that to me, I was like, well, that's an option. <laughs> and I like I like my job in general, but I have very little freedom in my job. And when we decided we really wanted to do a lot of traveling, we decided this is definitely the, the path for us so that we could get out there and go wherever we wanted to go. You know, after I met uh, Mr. Money Mustache at WDS this year, I started, you know, reading some of his blogs and I've read some of y'all's blogs. And the whole premise behind it, you know, is to save like crazy and essentially live a very frugal lifestyle, which is so contrary to the popular mainstream version of like what we're supposed to do. And, you know, like I was raised and I was terrible with my finances and I never learned financial literacy. And there's a couple of things I realized that growing up, there's some, there's like two big things I feel like we really, really learned from our parents. It's eating habits and financial literacy. And I very much very grew true. up, I very much grew up, you know, if I had 20 bucks, it's, it's gone. It's on baseball cards or Pokemon cards or something really stupid. <laughs> and, you know, my wife, her parents had a business. And so they very much taught her this financial literacy. I mean, it sounds like this was something that you guys very much had growing up. So mine came a little bit, I guess, the hard way. Um, my family wasn't very good with finances and actually went bankrupt when I was in high school. And so my mother gave me like every book known to man when I graduated college, all of Susie Orman, all of those financial books. Um, but they were all spouting the normal wisdom. So like I was matching my 401k. I had stuff in savings. I was doing what you're supposed to do. I just wasn't going above and beyond. I was living a good lifestyle, but not not frugal in any kind of way. And so it, there was still a, a lot of change there for that. But that's that's where my financial literacy came from. Steve's was a, a bit different. Yeah, mine's a bit different. Um, my, my family was has, has always been okay with money. He's, he's never real. I mean, my parents have never really been spenders, but they've they've had enough money to live comfortably. And they taught me to to budget from the first job, actually before the first job, right after I started getting allowances, I would break out money into certain categories so I know exactly what to spend on. So I was instilled with this with this idea that money has a purpose from an early age. That doesn't necessarily mean that I was perfect. In fact, like the like the uh, Corvette is a good example. <laughs> I was far from perfect, but at least I had that kind of knowledge. So I know, you know, I, I knew I wasn't doing the right thing, but I still wanted to have fun anyway. So I just, so I just did it. <laughs> but you're completely correct that it, it really does start young and a lot of people don't get it when they're at home. Um, that's one of the pushes for a lot of the financial community now is to try to talk to high school students and college students and um, at least give them like put it in their head like what what's compound interest why is it important to save just so that it's there for later in life yeah totally what's the difference between mainstream behavior of finances like what most people do and what a select few who are able to go on the 10-year plan do like what are those two what do those two behaviors look like and how are they different well, I think one of the big ones is those of us who, who retire early tend to pay themselves first. And that, that's a concept where you basically flip the typical procedure where you get a paycheck, you pay all your bills, you do, you do the things that you have to do first. Then you use whatever's left over for a little bit of saving, a little bit of, of discretionary spending. But the pay yourself first method means – you flip that on its head and you save for your for your major financial goals, your retirement, whatever that happens to be first. So you fully fund your 401k first, your Roth IRA, your brokerage account, whatever your investment picture looks like, you fund that first. Then you start looking at your bills and if you don't have enough for your bills, 
you look to decrease those bills, cut TV, cut, you know, don't upgrade your cell phone every single year, you know, things like things like that. And then only what's left over from that, you can have a little bit of decision making power regarding where that money goes. The pay yourself first is absolutely critical to this business of early retirement. And it makes Mm. it so you don't see the money. That makes a big difference for me. So if the money's in my checking account and I see it, that's there's money there. But if it immediately goes into my savings account and I don't see it, then it's much more likely to stay there. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, this is timely. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. This really like a coaching session for me because we just finished paying off our student debt or my student debt. We came in, we were good partners in some regards. She might not think so, but because I came in, I had <laughs> I had about $27,000 in student loan debt, and she had about $27,000 in savings, and we didn't just pour all of that into student debt because mm-hmm, that sure. would I would have felt like a terrible human being to ask her to do that. But over the past three <laughs> years, it gave us a little bit of a buffer to you know buy our first rig that was like 11000 bucks. It was used, and we hit the road, um, and we really didn't spend – much of any of that money to, to necessarily go and travel. But after our first year of RVing, we were able to, you know, start building up this freelance income and building up our business. And we did decide to put a lump sum of that amount into our student debt after we had already been traveling for the year. We were stationary and we were paying like 360 a month at a really cheap campground in Austin. And ultimately, mm-hmm. and over the past years, we paid off the debt. And then, you know, we started contributing to Roth IRA and sort of now we're, it's kind of like we're going from defensive to playing offense. And so it's just kind of sure. trying to figure out like, you know, what do, what do we do from here? We're starting to make more money. And like, I'm not just like putting lump sums of money into this a Sally Mae bank account that I've never, that I never <laughs> see anymore. So it's just like a, a right. bottomless money pit, you know, but at one point we were paying like four to five bucks a day in, you know, just giving that away in interest. So it was kind of crazy. So now it's, right. it's kind of an interesting, you know, disposition now to be in like a, I'm playing offense and what do I do moving forward? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. First off, congrats. That's huge. Thanks. Paying, yeah, paying off student loan debts is like a really big deal. <laughs> but that's that's actually one of the things that the community is. We have a lot of people in the financial community who that's their main goal. And then sometimes they can struggle after that because it's like, what well, what's next? So mm-hmm. it is it is a crossroads. Looking at what you guys have done, I know you talk and I've seen the same thing with Pete and some other people who have kind of taken this early retirement there's kind of this idea that like, it's not that you hate your job, but you, it's not your favorite thing in the world, but it pays really, really well, you know, like a software developer and, you know, a lot of them make six figures a year and that's a really great income. And then you couple that with another six figures a year and that's really solid. But what about, you know, someone like a situation like we're in where we're really enjoying our work that we're doing and we could push, you know, the gas down and really ramp it up and be making even a lot more money, but we're already really doing the work we want to do. Like, what do you think about a situation like that, whereas maybe you could go and make a little bit more money in a conventional job and hit that early retirement, or you're you're already kind of doing the things you want to be doing now? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a big decision. Some people believe in just getting, you know, going to college, getting a, a marketable degree, making as much money as possible, and then retiring and enjoying real happiness, really after you retire. But then th- there are others who really don't believe that. They believe the opposite. You know, why not be happy throughout your entire life? Even though you may not make as much money while you're working, you're still a lot happier than working a higher paying job with those golden handcuffs that you just can't seem to, to get away from. I mean, I ultimately accidentally chose the first option. I, I got a marketable degree in, in IT. Everybody's looking for IT. IT pays well. So I just went in and did it. I thought I was going to enjoy it initially, but it turns out it really didn't. But yeah, I mean, it pays well. You feel like you have to stay there because you're getting so much money. And really, that's it's hard to say what you know which one's right and which one's not because we're all different. We all we all enjoy different things and have different tolerance levels. I personally think that just making as much money as you can during during your accumulation phase and then thereafter start to investigate some of these other side hustles whether it's you know podcasting or making making sweaters or whatever that happens to be, you know, really start to ramp up your happiness and tie it with some income here and there. I think there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. For me, I actually enjoy my job. Yeah. But like I said, it has very little freedom. So I would not be able to do it on the road. Um, and there's no way to transition to doing it on the road. So f- that was a big question for me. Because once I actually retire in April, because I, I just took a sabbatical this year. I've been gone seven months. Um, and I'm going to do a few more w- months of work this winter. 
uh, I'm going to need to figure out what I want to do for, cause work for me, work was actually giving me value. I enjoyed it, which I think you, that's what you're saying. Like you're enjoying what you're doing. You're making money doing it too, but you're, it, there's some enjoyment level there. So I need to actually find that for myself afterwards. So if I could have, I would have kept working and mm. hit the road. So with like you being gone for seven months, did you guys mostly travel around in the Airstream the past seven months? Yes. So how does that, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear about that transition, like from a, I guess a happiness level, I don't know what other way to ask it, but from a happiness level, uh, it sounds like you get a lot of fulfillment from your work. So how has that played out with, you know, a semi-early retirement test or trial run for the past seven months? Like, did you miss work? Did you, like, did the joy of being out on the road and traveling, was that like a- Enough. Equal, yeah, was it enough, I guess? Um. I wouldn't say I missed work. I missed, so I'm going back. I really like my team and I like the challenge of what I do. And I miss that some. It was our first six months on the road. We also run a YouTube channel, a stream in life. So we had, we were making videos and doing stuff with the Airstream. And so I was challenged on that side of things. And so I wasn't missing it as much as I thought I might. But actually, the last couple months, once things settled down, we knew what we were doing. We had all, our, all of our travel routes planned. That's when I started thinking, OK, I'm going to need something because I didn't want to get into anything too big because, like I said, I knew I was going back to work. Um, but I know come April of next year, I'm going to have to sit down and be like, OK, I need something that I can that can challenge me, whether it makes money or not at this point, because of um, our finances are pretty secure. But I do miss the feeling useful in the challenge of, of work and the community even. Um, that was one of the few things that we were surprised about on the road because we're both introverts that we, we met people on the road and it was awesome. And there's the online community, but we did miss a little bit of the like friends community feel while we were out there. Totally. I, I think our, our first year on the road, we, we met a lot of people and we were super intentional. We volunteered uh, to video at conferences like World Domination Summit. And that's where we met a ton of our really, really close friends. And we started because they're all a bunch of travelers and nomads. And we started meeting up with them all over the country. And it's like now three and a half years into RVing. And we just now feel like a lot of those relationships are starting to bear fruit. And we're, I mean, we kind of go about, back on both sides of the coin. I don't know if I necessarily subscribe as an introvert or extrovert. But I know that uh, we have definitely felt the community lacking element. So, you know, finding small ways, like I'm working in an office right now with some of our good friends, just coming around and being around people this week for my work, it's it's invigorating in a sense because I'm just usually working in, you know, on my laptop in, in the RV as we travel, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I relate it to the gym, actually, which you might not think is has any relation to this at all. But some people can work out at home and be very motivated and just kind of spur them, themselves on in, in their in one little gym room they have somewhere with, with a TV on. I actually like being in the gym because you're surrounded by people who are doing the exact same thing. They're just as motivated as you. And it really amps you up. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I... I, I can definitely see how being in that in that kind of environment just just helps the process entirely because it certainly uh, helps me when it comes to fitness. Totally, yeah. I'm, I'm starting to realize uh, one of my friends was like going on and on about these like uh, this enneagram test, and I feel like everyone and their mom has been like telling me about them, and I was like, <laughs> and I just have no context. I'm like, I've done strengths finder. Is that the same thing? Uh, and so I just sat down and did this like little three minute test yesterday on the internet. I don't know if it's legit or not, but you know, mine came back <laughs> as somebody who is, you know, like a motivated person, but that also they get a lot of their energy from external recognition of their success. And it sounds uh, embarrassing to say that, but I totally do. Like I totally want to look successful to people. Uh, and so I, I get that energy of just even, and it's almost like trying to, like, once you learn about something like that, you can use it as a tool. It's like, okay, well, I want to get more fit. So I need to go to the gym because in a, in my own weird way, that's motivating. Anyway, that may be embarrassing to admit, but whatever. No, I think I'm there with you. So, <laughs> so you, you guys talk about uh, the retirement police and how people, I guess they give you a hard time because you claim retirement. Like that's an initial, that's initial part of your story, I guess for, for sure you right now, Steve. But I think the idea is that you're retiring from a job that maybe had some fulfillment, but not a ton. And essentially, it doesn't mean you're not going to do anything. Can you talk about like the difference between, like, I guess your mentality on retirement? What does that actually look like? 
Yeah, in fact, I just got a comment about that on the on my blog like yesterday. Are you really retired? You you run a blog, you you have affiliate links, and you, you, it doesn't look like you're retired. And yeah, the retirement police doesn't really concern me all that much. But I think the <laughs> bottom line is, you know, you're. I'd like to say that I'm retired from full time work. That's that that's the best way to describe it. And especially when you retire early. You're generally going to be, you know, creative and motivated enough to just make things work, get involved with things. Even if they happen to pay you money, that doesn't necessarily mean you've, you know, quote unquote, come out of retirement. If you're working 40 hours a week, then you might have a harder argument there. Um, but I certainly don't work that much. And really, to me, it's just about freedom, the freedom to get up in the morning and choose what I do with my day every day, all day. That's really what I want. And to me, that is what retirement from full-time work really means. Yeah. And a better word or a word that they use in the community is um, financial freedom instead of early retirement. So we are financially free, meaning we can choose what work we want to do or where we want to go. Um, and we don't have to worry about sticking to a schedule or, or a full-time job or anything like that. And so in my, I like the financially free uh, wordage of that but rather than the early retirement because um, it's a little less controversial, I guess. But actually, actually, that that's a really good point. So in this in this community, we have a term called FIRE, financially independent, retire early. But those are very, very different. You're financially independent when you don't need money, but you still might work a full-time job. Mm. And then early retirement kind of assumes you're financially independent and you're also not working a full-time job. So so those two concepts are very, very different. It, it, I mean, it really gives you guys the freedom to choose. And I, I, I don't remember where I heard this or who said it, but going to work when you don't have to go to work is a totally different experience. You know, and I can only imagine like like sure. because you're really ultimately choosing because you can always come back to it. You can wake up the next day and be like, I don't have to do this job. And that totally changes the dynamic of I need this job to put food on the table. Exactly. That's exactly it. It should be interesting when I go back to work uh, later today to see how that goes. <laughs> but um, but we actually talk about that. So a lot of people um, like we were just at a conference and we had um, I had men coming up to me and asking me, like, how do I get my wife on board? Like she wants the house and the kitchen and how do I get her, how do I get her on board? And I said, well, for me, it's about the freedom. And if something were to happen, if there was a family emergency, if you were in your job and you're, you got transferred somewhere, you don't want to go. If there's all sorts of ifs in life, even if you like your job, there's ifs in life um, of things that like you would do because of the money, but you really wouldn't want to. And the financial freedom side of things means that like, well, that's exactly it. You don't have to. So you can say, uh, no, I, I don't want that transfer. And so either I stay here or I quit. And um, that actually gives you a lot of power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a very small way, we haven't, I want to kind of dig into some of the process that you guys went through and some of the decision making to actually get to the point where you guys were financially independent. But even in our own little small way, the past like four years, we've been working on building up passive income streams. And we have like mm -hmm. 27 micro income streams outside of our client business, which is, you know, wow, things, awesome. every, everything as far as like podcast sponsorships uh, to um, a little bit of affiliate income just on a few posts. We haven't like went bonkers deep in affiliate stuff and we don't really oversell that kind of thing. But, you know, we have a couple posts that rank really high. Like one of them is for Passport America membership because we've used it, especially where you guys are at in that part of the country. It's like use it once. It's really solid. And so we make anywhere from like five to 600 bucks a month from this post we wrote a couple years ago. And that's like an outlier. Wow, very nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a really good one. Um, but anyway, like we've kind of continuously built on and added those up and been pretty intentional on trying to work on those. But you know, I've started to notice a difference even in our client work because now it's gotten to the point where we, if we need to back off, like our our passive income is around that livable amount. It's like twenty five hundred bucks a month right now, which in the beginning mm -hmm. sounded amazingly high, and now it's like okay, well, it needs to be five. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, ultimately, I <laughs> totally. think it's helped give us more flexibility and and not having to say like we need to say yes to every little opportunity. Like we want to. Like it's still a small part of our, our business at this point, but it, it, even in a small way, I'm starting to get a little bit of the taste of what that means to say yes to different opportunities and not have to say yes to everything. Exactly. That you already have a small part of that financial freedom in that you your monthly bills can be covered without having to do things you don't want to do necessarily. So yeah. that's awesome. 
Nice train in the background, by the way. You guys are definitely yeah, at a campground. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah. about that. I think like 90% of campgrounds in the U.S. are like right next to train tracks because it's it's oh, like the totally. cheapest property. And so they're like, yeah, you could go ahead and build a campground there. So I want to <laughs> talk about what actually goes into getting to become financially independent and how much money do you actually need to be making? I saw that at some one point, I don't know if this was continuously, that you guys were saving over $80,000 a year. Is that right? Going into your retirement? Yeah, both both my wife and I were making pretty good IT incomes, and we were saving all of hers and living off of about half of mine. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, essentially, it sounds like you guys are both making about six figures in those jobs, which is pretty common. And, yeah. And that, yep. but I mean, so many people in those situations, they just start scaling up everything. They're like, okay, well, I can make this. So I'm going to get the Beamer. I'm going to go and do all these other things. So, um, was there, yeah. was it a gradual tipping point for you guys to start making decisions to, you know, live off of half of one of y'all's income or did that happen all at once? Like, what was that process like? So first I just want to say something about the income thing. So we've met a lot of people in this community and Yes, a lot of them have incomes like ours, but there's also a number of people who do this on teachers' incomes and um, and things like that. And really, it's about knowing. And this is this goes right into how we scale down. Um, knowing what you're spending, because how much you need saved for retirement is completely based on how much you spend. Um, and so, yes. You can save lots and lots more money if you have lots and lots more money to, sp- to to like save if you have a higher income. But if you spend less and you're used to spending less, then even a lower income you can actually do really well in retirement. And so that was our first step: was we tracked everything we spent. And I I'm a spreadsheet queen. I love I love <laughs> spreadsheets. Um, and so. <laughs> We, we tracked everything and that really starts showing you like, oh, look at that membership fee that you've had going for the last year that like you don't use at all. Um, <laughs> or like how in the world did we spend that much on groceries last month and things like that. And we just slowly started chipping away at things that weren't important in our spending and got it and got it pretty low. Like Steve said, we were paying ourselves first at that point. So it was like, OK, we're going to max out our 401ks. If we do that, we're going to drop our income to this level like what can we do to make the bills less? And part of that for us was actually moving into the Airstream a year um, for a year. So we both owned a home when we met. And so for a while, we lived in one of them and rented the other one out. And when we decided we wanted to, to live this lifestyle, we bought the Airstream and we moved into it. And we spent an entire year, including an entire Tucson summer, <laughs> which was 116 degrees at Ouch. points, in the Airstream because it was going to be cheaper than storing the Airstream somewhere else and living in one of the homes. And that way we got to know what it felt like to live in it. But that was a that was a financial decision as well, because we knew it would help us cut our expenses even more. Do you have an idea of how your monthly expenditures has changed from now? And, and I know that it's more about the strategy and the mindset that goes into like this whole process. But just to kind of understand some numbers, like, do you guys have numbers that you'll try to hit on a month to month basis? Or is it more or less just being cognizant of what you're spending? We used to be much more, this is the budget, we're sticking to it. When we hit the road in April, um, I got a little more flexible. I'm the, I'm the money keeper. So <laughs> mm-hmm. But we just went through our numbers for the last six months um, because when we're on the road, we actually have very different. It's a very different looking than when we're in this campground because we're in Tucson. It's expensive to be in the campground, but I'm working 10 minutes away. So it makes sense to be here. Right. But things did change when we hit the road. So I I don't know if you care if we give numbers, but like our average right now is twenty nine hundred, twenty eight hundred a month is what we spend on the road, including everything. And. That was right around where we need it to be. Part of the early retirement thing is the 4% rule, which, or in other terms, like, I don't know, do you want to try to explain the 4% rule better than I can? Yeah, basically, the 4% rule is this Trinity study that was that was um, developed uh, several decades ago that proved, you know, proved, I use proved in quotes, <laughs> if you spend about 4% of your net worth every year, you will you stand a reasonably good chance of never running out of money, even during economic recessions, because over the long term, your money in the stock market tends to grow. 
So four percent was that was that percent that they that the the researchers in the in the Trinity study came up with to be a reasonable starting point, and so that's what we use as our starting point starting point for our expenditures. We actually spend a little bit below four percent, especially during the first ten years, just to make sure that nothing major is going to happen and we actually know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And so, like I said, we we did our numbers. We're at like twenty nine hundred right now, but thirty percent of that is discretionary uh, spending. So we split it all out into like the stuff that has to get paid, the stuff that we have to pay for and the stuff that we don't have to. Um, and so since 30% of what we're currently spending is our what, fun money, mm-hmm. if something happens, if we that recession comes that looks like it should be coming at some point here, we can we know the first things that we can cut out and still live pretty happily um, without really stretching our budgets, if that makes sense. Totally. And I never heard of the 4% rule. So you calculate your net worth by essentially what you have in savings, your kind of your total investments and your assets. Correct. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Though like we don't, we don't include the Airstream or the truck in our assets because we don't plan on selling them. Mm -hmm. People have all different ways that you can calculate your net net worth. But yeah, in in general, that's it. Another way to look at the 4% rule is actually if you take your yearly income and you multiply it by 25, right? Yes. Same thing because it's the same math. Um, And that's how much money you will need. So if, like I said, if if you know how much you spend and you're pretty happy with how much you spend each year or each month, um, if you then take that yearly amount and multiply it by 25, that's how much your net worth would have to be to have the, to have the four percent rule working out. So that's that's like the goal. That was our goal for when we were saving. Interesting. So you take your amount that you spend in one year's time and multiply that by 25 to calculate, and that will be your net worth. And then you get four percent of that number. Well, that that will be what your net worth should, should be. be. If oh, you, okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. If you believe this, the study. So, for example, if you have a million dollars in in net worth, just to make the math easy, four um, percent means you can spend around forty thousand a year going forward without making any additional money and stand a reasonably good a good chance of never having your money run out because of the magic of compound interest. It compound interest in the stock market. Gotcha. No, that's that's very interesting. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. So for you guys looking at like kind of just zooming out and looking at some of the different factors that helped dig in that helped you guys get to this financial independent place there. Like I kind of just want to hit on some of the high level things and maybe we can dig into a couple of them. There was, you know, just the overall mentality of living frugally. And, you know, there's subcategories of this, like kind of gamifying it and, you know, looking at how how much you could spend and looking at the 4% rule. What were some of the other things like it sounds like compounding interest. So what what is y'all's investment portfolio look like at this point? Like, are you what all are you doing in that area? Well, right now our saving is actually re- re- relatively little because we're, we don't make any income. But when we were first, well, not much income. When we were, when we were both working full time jobs, um, the first thing we did was we maximized our four hundred one k. So that's t- that's tax deferred. I mean that that lowers your taxable income. We completely maxed that out, which I think was seventeen five, if I remember correctly. But but don't quote me on that. Sorry, a quick question on the 401k, just because I haven't yeah, worked sure. in a company long enough to actually understand this correctly. Uh, with a 401k, can you max that out? Is it like a Roth IRA? Can you, do you have to max it out yearly or can you max out the entire thing? Yearly. There's a yearly okay, amount gotcha. that you're allowed to put into yes. it. Okay, gotcha. Yes. And, and typically companies will match a certain percent. So even if you don't max it out, Match. I, ma- yes. Because it's giving away will, money if you don't match. They will match your contributions up to, for example, 4, 4% of whatever you put in. So that is absolutely 100% free money. So if your company does match a certain percentage of what you devote to your 401k, that is money left on the table if you don't uh, match. If, if you don't contribute anything into your own 401k. Gotcha. So yeah, so we had the 401ks. Uh, I would say before even the 401ks, emergency fund. We made sure we had a nice emergency fund because I, I harp on that because a lot of people don't have one. Um, two to three months of, of living expenses in a savings account, easy to access just in case. Um, but then we started maxing out our 401ks. And then after that, we started putting money into um, taxable accounts. Do you want to say what they are? The Vanguard retirement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we established additional retirement accounts like a Vanguard. We like 
targeted retirement accounts in Vanguard through a brokerage account, which basically means a targeted retirement account means you identify a date in the future that you will quote unquote retire. It doesn't have, I mean, it could be any number. It doesn't have to be your real retirement uh, uh, year. Um, but what happens is Vanguard, and this is not an, an advertisement for, for Vanguard. It could be anybody. Um, your, your money is automatically diversified in the market and slowly transitioned from stocks to bonds. Stocks are more risky. Bonds are less risky. So the closer you get to retirement, that your money is automatically transferred more into bonds than stocks. So you manage your risk tolerance, I guess, uh, going forward until the very end, you know, until your retirement date, which I find to be very, very very easy way to invest. You're not picking stocks. You're just throwing money in there and you're letting the stock market do what it does best, grow your money. Yeah. And how long and have our, you guys our... had your money in a Vanguard type account? Oh, I, I opened my first account as a teenager. Uh, so I've had that for 20, I don't know, what am I, 36? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's> too early. <laughs> yeah, 20 some years. And, and, and with that account, do you have an average amount that that has grown in, interest, or in compounding interest on a yearly basis? Yeah, I think the last I looked, it was eight to nine percent over um, the average yeah. over over that that. So obviously, of time. there have been recessions and bad years, and then your percent gain is actually a percent loss in those years. Um, the main thing with the stock market is that it's long term, and so I don't remember is is people estimate like 6% as being like the long-term average gain that you can kind of count on for the stock market as long as you don't something, pull out during a recession. Yes, something like that. And then you have folks like Dave Ramsey who, who claims 14%, which I don't know. I, I don't want to get, get into it to an argument there, but you know, in, in the, I think in the seven to 10% range, um, from what I've seen personally, uh, seems to be a, a fairly, uh, fairly typical number. But, so like I said earlier, um, so we've, we've put all this money into, those are all, pretty much all of our investments. Actually, I think they all, all are all of our investments because we no longer have any real estate. We, we sold our houses. Some people do this all through real estate investing too. It's just not our thing. But because we decided we were going to hit the road and we were going to give up both of our full-time jobs and um, you don't really know what's going to happen in the next few years and it's not good to pull out of your stock if it's a recession and it's not a good time, um, we actually have quite a lot of money in savings in a, in a savings account, um, a few years worth of living expenses for us so that we can make it through the first, the next few years without having to worry about really diminishing our, our stock, um, until it's a better time to start pulling out of that, if that makes sense. So that was the next thing. After all the investing, we started really putting money into, um, a savings account so that we had it just in case for the next few years. Gotcha. It, looking at someone who is, you know, Alyssa and I are 26 right now. So if someone our age is making like $100,000 a year, how much of that do you think we should be working? And I know everyone is different, but if you guys were our age and you had to take your own advice, like what would what would you encourage us to be doing with that money? Like what would that split look like? And, you know, other than a Roth IRA, would you, would you go ahead and say if we're, you know, self-employed, we should be putting some of that into a Vanguard type account? Personally, I would say I would say yes. Really, I would say maximize your your retirement savings first, especially your retirement savings that's going to reduce your taxable income because that's money you don't let the government keep, and you keep all that money. It grows completely tax deferred. It's only taxed when you take it out later in in life. So, I mean, the very first step, uh, in my opinion, is to maximize your uh, your four hundred one k, for example retirement account right off the bat. And then, you know, wh whether you open a, another Vanguard brokerage account like, like we did or not, I mean, that's kind of optional. That That's up to you. We did only because we wanted to save even more. Um, but really, if, if you follow the pay yourself first method, establish a goal in, in the future when you're when your retirement is going to, you know, what that's going to look like, when it's going to be, what you want to do, and make sure that all that is funded first, then live off of whatever is left to pay the bills and, and discretionary spending and things like that. That's what I would say is, is most important. Yeah. So emergency fund, tax, uh, retirement, and then um, a taxable brokerage account would be my advice. And um, when we were, when we were working, 
we managed to get our, our spending down um, while staying full time at a pretty nice campground to uh, like 50,000. So if we, when we, if I made a hundred thousand dollars, I'd have 50,000 to then save in all those different ways. Um, and so that would, that would be kind of my, my goal if I were in that, in the, that situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It, do you think that like how, what do you based off of y'all's knowledge of the market and how much people typically spend at least with within your own experiences like if someone's making a hundred thousand dollars a year more often than not how much do you think they're actually spending and i know it's you can't say that for everyone but like if you had to say like the sure. masses, more yeah yeah some people might be spending more than a hundred thousand dollars a year Major- um, yeah the majority are spending the majority of what they actually take home so if you're earning a hundred thousand a year and for example you don't uh, contribute to your 401k at all Around 30%, so around 30 grand will be given straight to the government. You lose it. So you have 70,000 at that point to spend. And then from, from there, you're you know, spending on all your, your bills and, and discretionary spending and whatnot. And the majority of the Americans spend the majority of what they earn. I saw a statistic somewhere that the average American has something like 25,000 in savings or, or some, some, no, wait, no, something like that. that. Oh, yeah. it was less than that. I think 25,000 towards retirement. And it was oh, like, okay. Not even one month's, um, salary and savings or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so saving it, it's the whole, like put, putting yourself first. Um, but it competes with YOLO with people of our generation. Um, it really does. Like yeah. they're like, you only live once. Like I want to, I want to live right now. Um, which I understand, but at the same time, like you have many, 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 many more years possibly, and um, don't live right now at the expense of all self. of those years, your future <laughs> self, yeah. And so it, it, it's kind of a balance of making sure that you're happy now, um, but that you know that you'll still be happy later if, if and when things happen. Totally. When, when you guys were in this process, because it is so countercultural. And it's something for me that, you know, it's really good for me to have this conversation with you guys, just because it's something that it's a great message, not only for listeners to hear, but for, for me to hear. So whenever, because I, I tend to be a social spender. So like, I, I do want to go out and occasionally mm-hmm. have totally. really cool yep. experiences, but also living in RV for the past few years, I know that just because we're spending money doesn't correlate to the a meaningful experience. And so working deep to detach those things. So, but I also know that a lot of times it's like, if you're hanging out with a certain person, like some of my friends, you know, growing up college, whatever, you know, they were the kinds of guys or girls that, you know, like when you go out with them, it's like, you know, it really is YOLO. I'm like, where do you have this endless (laughs) amount of funds? So did you guys actually have to nix any of those people from your lives or how did you deal with that? Because, you know, every, I'm sure every friend circle has, or were all your friends just like crazy financial literate and just like you guys just never spent money together? That is a very, very <laughs> good question. And, and, <laughs> and something that a lot of us deal with my friends, especially tend to be spenders because I have friends in the IT industry. We all make good money and we all like to enjoy the fruits of our labor, um, quote unquote fruits of our labor. So what, I mean, I didn't necessarily cut them out. Certainly not. I'm still friends with them, but maybe we did things a little bit less. And when we did do things, maybe we do it at my house or their house and I'll bring beer or whatever, rather than going out to a, to a bar and dropping a hundred dollars on, you know, beer and shots and things like that. So we just kind of, I didn't, I mean, changing your group of friends is one way to do it. And if you have to, you, you have to, I mean, it, we're, we're all different. All of our situations are different. Sometimes that might be necessary, but in my case, I didn't change my group of friends. I just changed my behavior with them. And I really encouraged, I didn't talk money because they're not going to listen anyway. And it's not my, my place. I don't like to lecture people, believe it or not. (laughs) I don't like to lecture people, at least in person on, you know, how they spend their money. But I just encouraged when I was involved, the behavior is a little bit different where we don't go out somewhere, we stay in and we do our, our own thing for a fraction of the cost. And we're all just as happy. Yeah. And I actually talked to my friends. So, um, you did lecture them. No, I didn't kidding. lecture them. No, um, I no. I talked to them about what we were trying to do, hmm. and explained to them that like this is really important to us, and we have these goals set, and so um, I'd love to like do potlucks and hang out, and you're welcome to come over and do like campfires, because as you guys know, campfires are like some of the best things ever, anyway, yeah. um, and they don't cost that much money. So, um, but 
if there were like big things, it was kind of like, well, you need to let me know way in advance so I can either budget for it and schedule for it, or I'm probably not going to be able to go because it's just not going to fit in to the plan. And that being said, like we've had friends get married and we've flown out to see them. And so like we still do spend money on those fun occasions, but as long as we have enough time, we can look at that and say, that is something we're willing to spend money on. What are we willing to give up for a little while in order to make that happen? And so that was what I told my friends. I was like, big spending, like, let's go out Friday night. Probably not going to happen. But, um, but hey, want to come over and, and watch a movie? Yeah, that would work for me. Gosh, <laughs> so. that, that seriously is one of the biggest hurdles, I would say, in your 20s and 30s is like you can live incredibly frugally but then if you have a good amount of friends they're all getting married and that can easily break your bank like i was a groomsman at one of my buddy's weddings and you know we went out and i love him and we had a great experience and it was you know yolo as he said you know we had a really great time like we drove out to big bend in the rv okay there's a lot of money in gas uh you know paying for campsites well that wasn't too bad um because we boondocked but we you know then you know paying for your tux rental and you know lodging for where we were staying you know taking off days of work you know it it adds up and then it's like okay i can easily spend like a thousand bucks a pop at these weddings (laughs) yeah though we're frugal but we have we live this lifestyle for the freedom and part of the freedom for us is to be there for big family and friend events so weddings babies being born just to be able to be there with with the people. We've moved a lot. So we have people all over the country to be able to be there and see them for longer periods of time. And so we are more willing to give up on, I don't know, the latest Amazon gadget or whatever else that might be on our wish list on Amazon than to give up on the time with friends and family. And so for us, we tend to prioritize that spending and we'll budget for that and give up on the other things um, that don't actually mean as much to us. Totally. That makes sense. And I just have a couple more questions. One is that if someone's listening to this and they're saying, yeah, I I like the idea of having, you know, a fat stack in the bank and in retirement for, you know, whenever I get to that point. Um, but I, I don't want to give up all these various parts of my life. Like I don't want to give up going out. I don't want to give up hosting friends. I don't want to give up my, my annual vacations. Do you think that if they could experience the other side of the coin that the far majority of time that they would get a greater amount of fulfillment from what you guys are experiencing now in financial independence? That's a big, it's a big question in our community. It's it's also like, what if everybody did this? How would that, how would that Mm. be? Um, I don't know because I know people who that's very important to them. Um, I would like to say yes, but I think everyone's different. And so I have a feeling there would be people who wouldn't want to be out boondocking in the middle of the desert. They'd much rather be at a club every Friday night. Um, and so it's, I Even don't know. Even if that I means they're working their know. entire life in, in constant financial yeah. struggle. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. dynamic, right? Just to like human psychology or, you know, what makes us happy or what we think makes us happy. What make, yeah. What thinks, what we think makes us happy is, is I think the right way of putting that. Yeah. We, we humans have a natural ability to get used to, you know, get used to our routine. And really it's like going on a new diet. The hardest part is just that great, that transition where you move from where you are now to where you want to be. It's that middle ground that week or two or month or whatever it happens to be. That's the hardest part. But believe me when I say this, um, living frugally is a lot easier than, than, than most people would probably believe. It's once you get past that initial hurdle, um, that peak of transitioning from your previous life uh, to a life of frugality, it really becomes easy. You don't necessarily have to budget incessantly. No. Um, like we don't really budget all that closely either because we've done this so much that we just implicitly know whether our spending makes sense to us. So the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. It's just that it's just that getting started. As long as you can get started, just make yourself take that first step, and then each subsequent step gets easier. And one quick clarification, frugal does not mean cheap. Mm. True. I like that. <laughs> okay. what, what would you say if somebody does want to go in this direction, some of the, like a couple of your favorite resources for your paid books, whatever, to just starting to change that mindset? 
I really liked the book The Millionaire Next Door. That was one of the first books I, I read, and it really proves to you that millionaires aren't necessarily walking around with you know $15,000 suits and driving $200,000 Porsches. They are regular people. You're walking around with, with millionaires all the time, and you have no idea. And I really enjoy um, Your Money or Your Life. I think that's the title. Mm -hmm. And it kind of breaks down what we've been talking about, where um, is the money – and what the money buys you more important or is your life and what you actually makes you happy more important. Mm. Um, so that's another really good book. We've mentioned um, Mr. Money Mustache. That was the source, the first website that we really got into. Um, if one of the things that people often don't have, we said this with friends, is accountability. It's the same thing with like a gym partner. Um, it's hard to do things that are countercultural when you're going to have to break away from the norm and not do what your friends are doing. Um, and it's nice to have some kind of accountability partner for some people that's a spouse or, um, a friend, but there's actually a really awesome online community that's all about this stuff. And that's was one of our big support groups for all of this, whether you're trying to fire or if you're just trying to pay off a, a load of debt, there is a lot of people out there with blogs um, who are part of this, this financial community who are really supportive. They're like some of the most positive people we've ever met. And um, that can really help you get through all of that. I love it. One of those blogs are thinksaveretire.com. You should check it out. Yeah. Uh, last question for you guys is <laughs> Thank you very much, Heath. <laughs> as y'all are, you know, building, starting to build your new life in the Airstream and traveling uh, in semi retired uh, right now, Courtney and, you know, retired Steve, but also doing fun projects like YouTube and the blog, uh, what does success look like for you guys? For me, success means that I am enjoying every day that, that I get up, regardless of what we happen to, be, ha happen to be doing in the RV or elsewhere, wherever we happen to be. If I am happy, genuinely happy, if I could put a smile on my face and not fake it, <laughs> that is absolutely success to me. And I would just add on to that, um, a big part of that for me is freedom. So, um, and that the freedom to be happy. So, uh, the freedom to choose where we're going to be, what we're going to do, how much time we're going to spend with friends and family that, that I think is success. I love it. Well, thank you guys so much uh, for being on the podcast. Where can people connect with y'all online? Uh, I have my early retirement financial independence blog at thinksaveretire.com. And my wife, Courtney has her, a stream in life, YouTube channel. Yep. And blog at astreaminlife.com and, of course, on YouTube at astreaminlife. Yep. I love it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, you so it. much. Thanks, Thanks for having Appreciate us. Appreciate it. So much fun. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to that episode today with Steve and Courtney from thinksaveretire.com. Make sure to go say hi to them over there and let them know that you enjoy this podcast. I love getting tagged in tweets when people tweet at the guest of the show. And that happens from time to time is somebody will shoot them a tweet and tag me and just say, hey, guys, I love listening to you on the podcast. It was so awesome. I love that because, you know, they took time out of their day and their busy week to be a guest on this podcast. So a small thank you or an email or an Instagram message to them goes a really, really long way. And I'm just so appreciative of that. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you all next time on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast. <laughs>